Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the pastoral residents here at Ignite, and I'm excited to be able to, to preach today. Uh, it's one of the joys that I get to do uh, in this residency program is to be able to preach a few times throughout the year. Uh, if you don't, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's uh, uh, Bibles in the seat back in front of you. I encourage you to grab that, to, to use it as we read through Scripture today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, man, that's our gift to you. Or if you have a friend that you know that doesn't have a Bible, man, take that Bible with you and give it to your friend so there can be an encouragement to them. We have plenty. We have extra Bibles. We love giving out the Word of God to people who need the Word of God in their life. Well, like I said, we're in Ecclesiastes. If you uh, haven't been here in a little while and need to be caught up, we are walking through this book together as a church. One of the things that I love about Ignite Church about this local body is that a majority of our preaching throughout the year is walking through books of the Bible. Perhaps you were with us for the past three-ish years when we walked through the book of Matthew. Uh, we are currently going through Ecclesiastes. Uh, this book <clears throat> was written uh, by an unknown author. He goes by the title of The Preacher. And the preacher was one of the wisest men in the world. He was one of the richest men in the world. He had resources beyond resources. He had knowledge beyond all of our understanding. You could consider him to be a Solomon-like figure. Some scholars would say it is uh, Solomon who wrote this book. Others would say that it was maybe a collection of writings from Solomon that the preacher then compiled together and preached it. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that this man <clears throat> who was giving, who wrote this book, was wise beyond all of our understanding. And in his wisdom, in his riches, he set out, the preacher set out to find understanding in all of life. He tried to go out and say, man, what gives us joy? What gives us fulfillment? What is it in this world that can motivate the human life and give us meaning? He set up a series of experiments, which we walked through in the first couple chapters of this book. And then after walking through those experiments, he came up and realized that everything in this world, the pleasures of this world, knowledge that you can get, all of it is but hevel. This Hebrew word for vanity or vapor a mist, hevel. It's something that when you try to grasp onto it, it slips through your hands like a mist, and you can never fully grasp onto anything that is of this world. And the preacher is continuing on today in chapter 8, and he's going and he's saying, okay, if all of the things in this world don't give us meaning, then let's look at how the world operates. Let's look at how the, the wicked in this world operate and how the righteous of this world operate. And let's try to make sense of this broken world that we live in. And today, if we look at our world, we also see that it is still broken. That there is a great evil in this world, that there is injustice in this world. You don't have to look far to see a corrupt politician. You don't have to look far to see a governing authority take abuse of their power. You don't have to look far to see somebody in your own life who has been taken advantage of. Maybe all you have to do is look at yourself and say, yeah, I was taken advantage of and I have experienced great hardship and evil in this world. And also, I think it's important to look inward and say, man, where have I been wicked? Where have I been corrupt against God? I hope that most of us in this room as followers of Christ are striving towards righteousness, are striving to be somebody who is righteous before God. But I think all of us should admit and can that we are wicked apart from Christ. And the preacher here today, he sets out, <clears throat> excuse me, 
He looks out into the world and he tries to make sense of wickedness and of righteousness and, and why the wicked seem to thrive while the righteous seem to have everything go wrong in their life. And as we continue to look in this world, I think it's easy for us to, to even lose hope a little bit. To say, man, there is so much wickedness. I've experienced so much hardship in my life and so many things have come against me. Man, I'm just losing hope. And I'm starting to lose hope in, in God. I want to place my faith and my hope in him, but, but if I'm honest, if we're looking inwardly, I think a lot of us would say, man, there have been times where we've lost faith in God. If God is truly good and great, why is there so much evil in this world? And today the preacher is going to attempt and try uh, to, make, excuse me, to make sense of the wickedness in this world. He's going to do so in a few different ways. He's going to look at those who are in authority over us. He's going to look at how the, like I've already been talking about, the wicked seemingly go unpunished while the righteous have suffering. He's going to tie it back into God's wisdom at the end. But while we study this chapter, I want to read it together. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. If you have a Bible, I really encourage you to read it from your Bible or from the Bible in the pews in front of you. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble it lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when a man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city in which they had done such things. But this is also vanity. Because, of the sentence against, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set fully to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I apply my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. 
And while this passage speaks to a lot of areas of our life, I, I wanted to pull this main theme from it, and I'm taking it right from Psalm 1, verse 6. It is that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I believe that the preacher is pointing us out that, man, God knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. And as we dive into this text today, I've divided it up into three sections. The first one speaking on wisdom and authority in verses 1 through 9. And I love verse 1 because it kind of serves as a transitionary piece uh, between last week, chapter 7, and this week. If you were here with us last week, or if you weren't, uh, Pastor C was preaching through chapter 7, and his essential idea was uh, that God speaks to all of life, and the wise person listens. God speaks to all of life, and the wise person listens. And as we look today, the preacher here is expounding upon that. He's like, okay, if, if the wise person listens to God, then what does listening to God in wisdom look like? If God speaks to all of life, let's look into some practical ways that God is speaking to us today. And he does that in verses 1 through 9, uh, like I said, wisdom and authority. And, and verse 1 here, the second part of it, is great. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. And I love this little, little sentence that he says, because I think it's, it's something that we often forget, but that is so important, that, man, when we spend time with God, when we spend time in his word, when we spend time in prayer and seeking his wisdom, our countenance should change. The way we look before others should change. I think for a lot of us, we can see that maybe in a grandparent that has spent a lot of time with the Lord spent 50, 60 years serving the Lord faithfully. There's something about their countenance that changes. When they talk about the hardships that they endured, they're saying it with a smile on their face because they realize that God was faithful through all of those years of hardship. The wisdom that they have is one knowing that, man, my life might not be perfect, but God is. My life might have hardships, but God is good. Their face, their countenance changes. The hardness of their face is changed. Psalm 34, verse 5 speaks to this. Those that look to him, him being the Lord, those that look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. When we look to Christ, our countenance should change. Daniel and his friends in, in the book of Daniel have a very similar thing. In the, in the early chapters of Daniel, it speaks to that these men were different than all the rest in the equal place of authority that they had. <clears throat> that while taken from their homeland, put into captivity, they were still, they looked brighter, they looked happier, they were different than every other person around them. And on the, the flip side, we see maybe somebody that has spent a lifetime hardened by sin, a lifetime hardened by hardships in this world without the hope of the gospel without the wisdom of God, and, and we see their face to be hardened. We see their actions to be one birthed out of anger instead of one of love. And there's a quote, I'm not quite sure who the author was, but I love it. It says, the wisdom of the gospel turns the frown of sin into the smile of grace. The wisdom of the gospel, it turns the frown of sin into the smile of grace. Because when we're reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, that we get to spend eternity with him, and we can rejoice and we can have a different countenance about us knowing 
man, there was grace given to me and that's all that I need. All that I need is the hope and the wisdom of the gospel to turn hardship of the world, the sin, the vanity in this world, everything that is wrong with this world. I don't have to let that harden me. I don't have to let that corrupt me. No, but I can grasp onto wisdom of the gospel and smile in the grace of God. That was verse one. The preacher goes on. He takes time to show us after he's taking time to show us what godly wisdom does to a person. He gives us instruction on how wisdom, how to use wisdom in relation to authority. Verses two through nine. The preacher here reminds us that those who are in authority are placed there by God. That those who are in authority over our lives, be that government, be that our bosses, be that our professors if we're in school, be that our parents, our landlords, whatever it may be, that they are in place in authority by God. Romans 13 speaks to this as well. Paul writing to the Roman church, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now take note, when Paul is writing this, he's writing it in the midst of Nero being the emperor of Rome, and he was probably one of the worst persecutors of Christian to date brutally murdering, brutally destroying and attacking the church. And yet Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Because that authority is from God. And so while we might not understand why those who are in authority over us are wicked, we have to understand that, man, God has them in that position and we are to honor them and to respect them. It's because God has placed them in, in verse 2. It says, because of God's oath to him here in Ecclesiastes. As we follow Christ, we're in submission to Christ's authority as our Lord and as our Savior, and he has placed earthly authority over us. Even if our authority on earth is not saved, is not a follower of Christ, we are to be placed in submission to them. But of course, this raises the question, and I know if you're anything like me, that kind of makes you a little angry inside and makes you not so comfortable And so the question gets raised, man, are we to blindly submit to every piece of authority over us? That no matter what, because they have a position of authority, we're just to blindly submit to them. And the preacher here, he would even say no. But he does give us a warning. Be not hasty to go from his presence, presence of those in authority over us. For he does, the king of those in authority does whatever he pleases. Verse 7, it says, For he does not know what is to be. This is talking about ourselves. We do not know what is to be, for who can tell us how it will be? In other words, men, when we challenge authority, when we rebel against those who are in authority over us, we have no control over what comes next. We have no control over the consequences that are to come. So be careful when you rebel. Be careful when you go against authority. I'm not saying to never do it. Scripture doesn't say that, but in Acts chapter 5, Peter talks to this. Peter, being a disciple of Jesus, talking to the Jewish high council, asking him to stop sharing the gospel, he answers, we, being the apostles, must obey God rather than man. So we see this tension of God saying, okay, submit to authorities, but also obey God rather than man. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both and. We say, okay, we're going to submit to authority unless they ask us to do something that God, to not do something that God has commanded us to do. 
So at any time that the authority on this earth commands you or tells you to do something that is in opposition to our faith, that is when we stand out and we say no. Because our faith and what God has commanded us to do in Scripture throughout the entirety of Scripture is far more important than any earthly authority over us. But if there's something that Scripture does not give clear command on, that God has not given you clear command on, man, be careful when you step out. Be careful of when you step out against authority. You don't know what's coming and you have no control over the consequences. And God has told us to submit to authority. As we move on, the preacher has given us command for how to follow those who are in authority over us. But then the preacher transitions and he says, okay, first and foremost, you need to know, respect your authorities. And then he goes on and says, man, look at the world around us. Look at the wicked, look at the righteous. And in verses 10 through 15, we see this theme of wisdom and judgment from God. The preacher goes on and he says, I saw the wicked buried and they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city in which they had done such things. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The heart of the, a child of a man is fully set to do evil. Wicked go in and they go out, they get praised for their wrongdoing. I think we can see this in our world pretty clearly. That the wicked around us, those who are sinners far from God, and they, they brutally abuse their power over us, and I do want to just quickly make a note. You and I are also in this definition of wicked, apart from Christ. I don't want us to read this text and say, oh yeah, the world out there is wicked beyond all else. We're righteous. That's a dangerous place to be. Because we too are so depraved, so far from God without Jesus as our Savior. So as we're reading this, not just look outwardly at the world, but also look inwardly and be, man, God, where have I been wicked? Where have I sinned against you? Where have I hurt somebody else? Where have I sought the praises of man over honoring and obeying you? Look back in here. It says that the wicked, <clears throat> they used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised. They sought the approval of man. They tried to get everything that would build themselves up. But as we've seen through this entire book of Ecclesiastes, we know that the praises of man, we know that worldly possessions, promotions, all of these things are but hevel, the mist that we can't fully grasp onto. But I, I love and am terrified by how verse 10 starts. Then I saw the wicked buried. In other words, Man, the wicked have got, might have gotten everything in this world when they were alive, but they too died. They too died. <clears throat> and then at the end in verse 13, it says, it will not be well with the wicked because they did not fear before God. Because all of us in this room, we all have the one thing in common, that is death will happen to all of us. And after death, nobody in this room will escape the judgment of God. Nobody is going to escape the judgment of God. While wickedness may seemingly go unpunished in this world today, verse 11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the wicked go on and they are exceedingly evil, fully set to do evil. So while we might see, man, I've been getting away with this cheating on my tests. Man, I've been getting away with, with these lies that I've been telling. 
Or maybe we look out and we see, man, my friend was brutally abused and their abuser got away with it. Man, I was stabbed in the back at work and somebody took my job. Somebody took my promotion. Man, my friend betrayed me and somebody that I used to call a brother, a sister, is now somebody that I can't even stand to look in the eye because all I can see is the hurt in the world and they have gotten away scot-free. But yet nobody escapes the judgment of God. We might think we're getting away with it on this earth, but we're not. We're not getting away with anything. We can't get away from, our, from the judgment. Let that serve as, as a warning to us all. That man, no matter what you think you're getting away with at earth, you will have to answer for it one day. And if your faith is not placed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will face eternal judgment. The only hope that you have is Jesus Christ. The only hope that you have is placing your faith in him. It's a sobering warning to know that it will not be well with the wicked when God's judgment comes. But let this also not just serve as a warning, but as a comfort. To know that those in this world who are exceedingly wicked and who have used their power to oppress you, God's judgment is going to come. You might be angry thinking, man, where is justice? Where is the righteousness that I deserve? And take comfort in knowing that God sees you, he cares for you, and his judgment will come. And and knowing that while it says in verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked, if we just look up a little bit, it says it will be well with those who fear God. Knowing that in the midst of this wickedness, knowing that in the midst of this fallen, broken, hurting world that we live in, if we remain steadfast in the Lord, if we fear him, it will be well with us. Maybe not in this world. Maybe not any time that you see, maybe not for the next 10 years, five months, maybe never. But if we truly look at this world, how much in this world is worth holding on to? Not much. This world is filled with hevel. But we know that eternity with Christ is the greatest reward and the greatest thing that we can take comfort in, knowing that for those of us who fear God, he will take care of us. Moving on to verses 14 and 15, the preacher kind of just expounds upon this even deeper. He says there is a vanity, there is hevel that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, hevel. So he's really just expounding upon this fact that like, man, it seems like the wicked in this world get the reward due to what should be given to the righteous. But meanwhile, those who are striving after righteousness, those who are striving to be more and more like God, those who are holy and righteous, man, they're getting trampled underfoot. They're getting beaten down. The world is just hitting them over and over again. And this this is just vanity. This is hevel. There is no, nothing that can make sense of this. It is but vapor. We can't grasp on to the understanding of this. And so what does the preacher tell us to do? What does he tell us to do in the midst of this hardship that, that the righteous get the reward due to the wicked and the wicked get the reward due to the righteous? 
And he says in verse 15 that the man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You've been with us for a few weeks. You've probably heard this phrase come up again and again and again. And why is that? It's because of the absolute beautiful truth that it is that we can find joy in our work. We can find joy in putting food on the table. And we can find joy in the gifts that God has given us. However few they may seem to be, they are what we are to find joy in, the gifts that God has given us. While the world might be crazy around us and exceedingly wicked, and control what you can control. You can't control your friend that stabbed you in your back. You can't control the job that you lost. You can't control the friends in your life that are being, that just have all the evil going on with them. But what can you control? Man, you can control where you place your faith. You can control where you place your hope. Control what you can control because we see that work is a gift from God. Finding joy in him, finding joy in what we do is but a gift from God. So we should place our hope in that. Because if we place our hope in anything else, it's going to slip through our hands. And so might I ask the question of where do you find your joy today? Do you find your joy in, in your study? Do you find it in knowing or do you know it, that your study is a gift from God? Let me say that again. Do you find joy in, in your work and in your study? Or do you find joy knowing that your work and your study is a gift from God? Maybe to the, to the parents in this room, do you find joy in raising your kids, hopefully, but do you also find joy in knowing that, man, your kids are a gift from the Lord? Where is your joy found? And lastly, the preacher is going to be pointing out that wisdom. The reason that we are to find joy in the things that we can control in this life find wisdom in or find joy in God is because God's wisdom is far beyond our own understanding. The last two verses, 16 and 17, point out wisdom and work, how we can work our entire lives to try to understand what God is doing, but we will never fully, fully grasp it. As I was talking through the, the first part of the sermon, I, I mentioned that the preacher, you know, he set out trying to understand the meaning of life trying to understand what gives us joy, fulfillment, what pleasures of this world can truly sustain us. He observed the world and its workings, and what did he learn so far? Let's read again verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how do you neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep? Then I saw all the work of God, that men cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it. So what has the preacher found out after all his years of study? He's found out that we cannot ever understand the workings of God. We cannot ever fully understand why things are happening the way that they're happening. It might be maddening to some of you because it is to me. I want to know what God is doing. I want to know what the next five years of my life are going to look like. I want to know why I am suffering the way that I am. I want to know why everything in this world is happening. I want to know why a close friend passed away. We want to know why God allowed a loved one to die. We want to know why God allowed us to lose our job I don't know why our friend was in such a, or ourselves were in such an abusive relationship for so long. 
And while we know that the things that are evil in this world are not from God, we wonder why God allows them and we wonder his wisdom in walking us through them. The preacher here is just saying, man, there's so much that we can't control. There's so much that we can never know. So where are we to place our hope? Where are we to place our joy? We place it in the only thing that we can, and that is in God. It might sound simple and might sound even more maddening, saying, Rob, you're, you're telling me that there is nothing that we can fully understand in God's way, in God's will and his work. And I think that's really the, the point of this text, the preacher saying, man, I spent my eternity trying to figure this out. As we're sitting in this room, we might think, well, I'm going to try harder. The preacher was the wisest person to ever live. You're not going to figure it out if he couldn't. Maybe you're in this place and you're trying desperately to find joy. You, you've walked with us for the past eight weeks as we studied Ecclesiastes. And you're saying, Rob, I've seen in this text that I'm not supposed to find my contentment in this world. I've seen in Ecclesiastes that my study, while maybe important, is not where I'm supposed to place my value. I've seen that my work, while providing for me and my family, is not important enough to sacrifice time with my family that I shouldn't place my hope and joy in that. But yet, even when you've seen that, you're still struggling to understand why God is allowing you to go through hardship. Maybe you're saying, man, I didn't place my faith in my job and yet I still lost it. Maybe you're saying, man, I don't place my faith or my hope in my family, but man, when my brother died, it hurt so badly and I don't know what God is doing. When my mom passed away, it hurt so badly. I don't know what God is doing. When my friend betrayed me and stabbed me in the back, I don't place my faith and my hope in them, but it hurt so badly. I don't know what God is doing. God, would you tell me your plan? God, would you tell me, show me what is going on so that I can have a glimmer of hope? And I, reading this text, the preacher says, we may never fully understand why God allows the sufferings of this world to happen. But we do know this, that those who fear the Lord, it will be well with them. Maybe not in this life, I've said this so many times, that maybe not in our life today will we know why God does what he does, but we have a God that cares for us. We have a God that comforts us. And so we can cry out to him and say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you would allow this evil to happen to me, but God, I can control one thing, and that is placing my hope in you. If that's all I can control, then that's all I'm going to do today because it can get me to the next day. God, I'd like to see and know what's going to happen to me in 30 days from now, but I'm going to trust you to let me take the next step tomorrow morning when I wake up. I'm going to place my faith and my hope in you tomorrow. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we've walked through this. We know that God knows the way of the righteous. He cares for them. He loves them. And though while we may strive to look like him, we also see wickedness running rampant in the world, sometimes even in our own lives. So let this text in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 serve as, as a warning to make sure that we're in line with God's word, to know that while we might escape earthly punishment and earthly justice, 
We're never going to escape it eternally from God. Let it also serve as a comfort that for those of us who fear God, God will care for us. For those of us who place our faith and our hope in him, he has us, he loves us, he's sovereign over all, and even if we don't understand it, we can place faith and hope knowing that at the end of the day, God is in control and our life should be fully surrendered to him. Let's pray.